Thank you. Good morning. Well, um, today we're going to talk about poverty's impact on mental health. My name is Angelina Hudson, um, Program Director with uh, NAMI. NAMI stands for the National Alliance on Mental Illness. So I'm the Program Director here in Houston. My name is Gary Eagleton, and I'm going to kind of introduce us as a, as a couple in terms of the work that we've done in the organization that we've been involved with that kind of led us to the place that we are in looking at this poverty's impact on mental health. Angelina and I have both been involved with communities and schools on a local level here in Houston and nationally as trainers. Uh, we've been involved with FAST Families and Schools Together, Project Grad, which is Graduation Really Achieves Dreams. Um, and with the um, with the AHA process material, I have been a certified facilitator for the original frameworks that was written a long time ago, uh, framework for understanding poverty, then bridges and getting ahead, understanding and engaging under-resourced college students and bridges to health and healthcare. Angelina and I started working together several years ago when we founded a nonprofit in Northeast Harris County, which we'll talk about a little bit later, which is uh, one of the under-resourced communities that we've been involved with. Um, worked with the Harris County Juvenile Probation Department, uh, became level one, six seconds emotional intelligence coaches, uh, <laughs> trainers for Search Institute, the developmental assets, joined NAMI Greater Houston as volunteers and as board members. Uh, Angelina became the director of education there. We're now both state and national trainers for the National Alliance on Mental Illness, some of their signature programs. We are mental health first aid trainers, both youth and adult, uh, and I'm a leading instructor uh, and co-curriculum developer for um, University of Texas School of Health's Community Health Worker Institute. Now, with all of that said, it is basically the combination of that community of work that brought us to where we are. What I'm going to ask you to do originally, or not originally, but initially, is to begin in your head, if you will, to de develop your own uh, visual and or mental mindset where if you can, on one side of your brain, if you can visualize uh, people that you deem might be living in poverty, and on the other side, if you can just have a section that is kind of reserved for those families and their individuals that might be involved in raising or are themselves diagnosed with a mental health diagnosis. On this first slide that we'll look at, what you see is just a statement that says living in poverty is a risk factor for stress-related illnesses. For those of you that are very familiar with Ruby, with the work of our process and Bridges Out of Poverty, then you're familiar probably with uh, Robert Sapolsky and why zebras don't get ulcers. Okay, Robert Sapolsky is a Stanford University biologist, and he did work uh, kind of looking at animals and human beings and the difference in, in, in why it is that they uh, have stress-related kind of illnesses in their life. It's been kind of considered or proclaimed as a guide to stress, stress-related diseases and with co uh, coping. Now, one of the, in one way or another, you will probably see this statement over and over and over again throughout this, this presentation. The next is looking at those 10 health conditions that could be related to stress. Yeah, these are the 10 most significant health problems related to stress. And the only reason we really highlight this is just to show the correlation between uh, 
stress, and overall health conditions. Um, we have listed here heart disease, asthma, obesity, diabetes, headaches, depression, and anxiety, gastrointestinal problems, Alzheimer's, um, accelerated aging, and premature death. And as you can see, mental health is a part of the uh, top 10. But there's a direct correlation between the way we uh, process stress in our bodies and how it impacts overall health. Now, as we look at this slide again, the lower the socioeconomic status of an individual is, the higher is his or her risk of mental illness. Now, again, in some way or another, you will hear that over and over, that theme over and over again throughout this, uh, this presentation. And the reason that we wanted to cite uh, Dr. Christopher Hudson, especially his research from 2005 that's printed in the American Journal of Ortho Psychiatry, is because he really examined all of the research that was collected from the 30s to the uh, 50s to the 70s, all the way through you know the early 2000s, that looked at the uh, relationship between SES and mental illness, and conclusively, all of the data indicates not only that there's a correlation, but there's a strong correlation in social causation, and we'll talk about that a little bit more later on in this presentation. Okay, our today's goal. We start out here with the goal of examining the correlation between mental illness and poverty we have these objectives. Number one, to offer a working definition of poverty because we probably, again, if we're not familiar with the work of AHA, then we all probably have a number of different definitions of poverty. So we're gonna just kind of hone in on that definition. And then we're gonna actually have an opportunity to look at some differentiation between mental health and mental illness slash disorders. Often we speak of one thinking that we're speaking of the other and, and, and vice versa. So we wanna get some clarity on what the difference is between the two. We're gonna have an opportunity to, um, to, to, exactly. to look at, or to examine rather, which comes first, the mental health condition or poverty? Does poverty have a direct effect on mental health? Is poverty a sign or a symptom of mental illness and um, discuss interventions that support, support, that's my casual register coming out, support both those experiencing poverty and those experiencing mental health issues and or conditions. What is poverty? According to Dr. Ruby Payne, poverty is the extent to which an individual does without resources. Now, as we move on in that definition, the extent to which an individual does with our resources, what are those resources? Uh, and let's go through those quickly. First of all, there's a financial resource, there's a, a mental, emotional, uh, physical, spiritual support systems, relationships, role models, knowledge of hidden rules. As you go down that list, you will probably automatically come up with the definition for what that might be. A financial resource, mm, I know what that is. Uh, but I don't know if I'm real sure of what the knowledge of hidden rules are. It's basically that I know how to navigate relationships to be able to use those relationships as tools to support the research, the resources that I need uh, throughout my lifetime. So what is poverty? The extent to which an individual does without these eight things. As a matter of fact, if you're familiar with the um, 
with SAMHSA's wellness wheel, you'll probably see it looking very, very much the same as this list of resources that are highlighted in Dr. Payne's definition of poverty. As a risk factor for mental illness, number one, uh, one of the studies that we looked at found that the low-income uninsured population had a higher prevalence of one or more of the following. Psychiatric disorders, 51% versus 28%. Mm -hmm. Mood disorders, 33 and 16. Anxiety disorders, 36 and 11. Uh, and then probable alcohol use and or uh, abuse, 17% versus 7. And eating disorders, 10 versus 7%. Wow, so it looks like where there's low income in every one of these cases, there's a high, higher prevalence than those populations that are not low income and have insurance. In all racial ethnic populations, persons with low socioeconomic status were at least twice as likely to have frequent mental distress and the, as those with high socioeconomic status. SES shapes a person's exposure to psych psychosocial, environmental, behavioral, and biomedical risk factors that directly and indirectly affect mental health. Now, I want to put a pin right here and make sure that you recognize that we are not saying that if you are uh, in poverty or have poverty mindset, then automatically you're going to, you know, you're going to develop a mental health disorder or a mental illness. That is not what we're saying. But we are looking at the data that kind of gives us some statistics on who's our population. How many of those that are in uh, poverty situations also deal with mental health conditions? And then how many of those that are, you know, tracked through CDC with mental health conditions are living in poverty? And so a lot of this information just relates to the facts, and uh, we're going to take a deeper dive into some causation. But first, before we get into that, let's differentiate when we're talking about mental health versus mental illness. Um, what is it? I, I know many of us have been anxious before, but what takes us away from just having plain, ordinary anxiety to an actual diagnosis, a clinical diagnosis of anxiety disorder? Or how many of us have been depressed before, sad, but we're not considered um you know, diagnosed as having a mental illness of depressive disorder. So how do we know when we go from one extreme to the other extreme or somewhere in between? Um, what, what takes us from mental health condition to a mental illness? Well, mental health, as defined by the World Health Organization, can be conceptualized as a state of well-being in which the individual realizes his or her own abilities. Um, they can cope with normal stresses of life. They can work productively and fruitfully and are able to contribute to his or her community. In contrast, a mental health disorder or a mental illness is a diagnosable illness that affects a person's thinking, emotional state, and behavior. It disrupts a person's ability to work, carry out daily routines or activities, um, and it impacts their ability to engage in a satisfying personal relationship. Um, to put it uh, summarily, it's, it, imp it impedes a person's ability to live, laugh, and love. And... Um, so when we look at these areas, how mental illnesses can impact a person's emotion, thought, behavior, and even their physical appearance, um, mental illnesses we want to uh, keep on the front of your mind are diagnosable by a clinician, and they are neurological disorders. They all have signs and symptoms that occur over a period of time. So it's not... Um, 
you know, you have a bad day, you're coming home from work and you're, you know, not very reasonable with the traffic and, and acting irrationally. Oh no, I must have a mental illness. No, that's, that's just an episode, right? But to have a, a clinical disorder, it has to be something that's observable over time. I also want to highlight the difference the difference between a sign and a symptom, right? Um, a sign of mental illness is something that is observable. It's something that, you know, anyone can see um, as a change in your mood or behavior. But a symptom is something that the person experiences. Now, that can also be a sign. Like, for instance, if I'm sleepy, you could see that I'm sleepy, um, but I also feel tired. You know, but um, but they're not always um, visible from the outside. Symptoms are not. Um, as a matter of fact, in today's um, well, not just today, but mental illness is not one of those um, illnesses. You know, you can say I have diabetes. Um, people can say, you know, I have a problem, um, you know, with my kidneys or or any other health um issue, but mental illness is not something that we talk about openly. And that's simply because of the shame, blame, guilt, and the stigma associated with mental illness. So people who live in this arena tend to hide these signs and symptoms very well. But here are a few examples. Um, feeling sad or down, confused thinking or reduced ability to concentrate, extreme mood change, uh, the high highs, the low lows, withdrawal from friends and activities that maybe we once enjoyed, uh, detachment from reality, such as delusions or paranoia or hallucinations, auditory or visual. Inability to cope with daily problems or stress. Trouble understanding and relating to situations and to people. Alcohol or drug misuse. Excessive anger, hostility or violence. And suicidal ideation, suicidal thinking. Um, these are just some of the you know, um, signs and symptoms that are related to a mental health um, illness, or I mean a mental health condition or a mental illness. So that leads us to the age-old question, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? So there's been a lot of research trying to find out, well, you know, does poverty have an impact on a person's mental health such that it is causing mental illness in our population? Um, so when we look at people with serious mental health issues, they're more likely to be unemployed, they're more likely to be homeless, they're more likely to be unmarried, they're more likely to be poorer than the average population to everything that we have been able to find and to read. However, on the flip side of that, if we move over to that other side where we have, you know, we've got the, the poverty on one side and then we've got mental health on the other, when we look at poverty as the extent to which an individual does without resources, what we see is a list of things. But if you look at that list under poverty and you look at that list uh, under people with serious mental health issues being more likely to be affected by those things, where do they fit? What on the right side could possibly be a cause of someone being unemployed or being homeless or being unmarried? are being poorer than the average population. And when you really look at the extent to which an individual does without that list of things, it looks a lot like, maybe not the cause, but certainly involved in some way with my condition and my, uh, and my state. If it's emotional, I may have some difficulty getting along with folks in the office. If I don't know 
and I don't have the knowledge of hidden rules, I might not know how, again, to leverage my relationships. If I don't have, uh, well, we we don't have to even spend a lot of time on that physical place because if I can't get out of bed in the morning, you know, I'm not going to be employed by anybody for very long. Um, and Gary, if you're not employed, you, you might not be able to stay married either. Well, yeah, you got a point there. Um, I'll have to talk to my wife and right. see what, if I can do a retirement kind of thing here. But so when we talk about the chicken or the egg and we look at one size versus the other, they begin, especially for the work that Angelina and I have been doing, they begin to look pretty much like one and the same. And they don't always give us a, a place to say, well, well, that came first or this one came first. So so when we look at the chicken or the egg question, do we have an answer at this point in time? You might, we've not had come to that agreement, to that answer. So what we're talking about, it's not cause, causation, but impact. You know, the implication of poverty on mental illness. Um, you have an increase of trauma when, when you're in a poverty population, right? There's a greater risk for envir environmental stressors. There's an increased incidence of traumatic events. Um, there may be some learned negative coping skills. So we have children who may not have a diagnosable brain disorder, but they've learned the coping skills of maybe a parent or someone who lives in the home with them who display, who does have a neurologically based disorder, and they've learned those same uh, how to exhibit those same behaviors. Um, there may also be a lack of medical care and mental health intervention and low SES. And also one part of um, mental health challenges is denial and lack Lack of insight. Um, these illnesses also impede treatment and recovery, and so would poverty. Um, chronic serious mental illness can occur in any SES. We already know that. Um, we know that there are mentally ill populations that cross ethnic backgrounds, they cross um, whether a person is lower middle or upper class, but um, Mental illness can, chronic in any way, at any rate, can lead to homelessness, unemployment, and chronic crisis. And there's a certain loneliness in the journey. Um, not being able to maintain relationships, whether they be in your own home or in the workplace or even in the community. A, a person who's living with mental illness does a lot of work to kind of hide the negative impact of that illness on themselves as they relate to the world. So there's loneliness in the journey. There's also research that bears out an increase in single-headed household. So if you look at a um, at the population of those living with uh, mental illness and poverty, a large majority are going to be single people, um, especially women, um, and, and they're parents of children. So, you know, there's all of the research that we've, we examined, which were 21 different studies, they all showed a strong negative relationship between SES and mental illness. And it didn't matter what type of sampling was used, the measure or the research design, um, the findings about the underlying um, and theoretical interpretation of where mental illness comes from and which came first, was the person in poverty first, or was the poverty um, um, and low SES outcome a result of the mental illness? Well, from the poverty side of it, um, if there's a predisposition, okay, of, um, of, a, of a neurological disorder in a person's lifetime, then those stressors, which include economic stress and family fragmentation, those two things can be traumatic and cause a number of stressors that would trigger a, a person's first episode. But then on the other side of the coin, when we look at... 
those who are in the poverty population and those living with mental illness, um, there's three hypotheses that support why a person might be in poverty. Number one would be the geographic drift. And that suggests that those who are in, that have a mental illness that have experienced their first uh, hospitalization have somehow migrated back into a lower SES. Um, it may not be the SES that they come from or originated from, but they tend to move into uh, lower income communities. And that, you know, point in case, we have a attorney here in Houston and and he shares all over the country a story about, um, you know, his uh, bipolar disorder led to drinking and driving, right? And then the drinking and driving got him arrested a number of times. And after you've had a felony on your record, that doesn't go away, right? He's been disbarred. And he works now as pro bono helping uh, fight for the rights of others. He's uh, clean and sober and healthy and in recovery. However, he still cannot move out of certain neighborhoods where he is um, able to find an apartment to rent because with a felony on his record, he can't live anywhere uh, in, in our area. Um, the second hypothesis would be the socioeconomic drift. This is where after a person has experienced their first episode of mental illness or hospitalization, they can no longer go back into the lifestyle that they were once in. Um, they cannot get their job back. Uh, I've had a young person call me after 14 years of being employed at a hospital. Um, she did not want to share with her employer that she was suffering from paranoia and, um, just stopped going to work. She lost her job, and she's not been able to find a job like the one she had at the hospital again, and it has completely changed her, her income bracket. And then also the third hypothesis is intergenerational drift. That means that um, uh, you have multiple generations that may live in one house, and whomever in the family is impacted by a mental illness disorder, it impacts the whole family. And so for whatever reason, that family unit doesn't get what they need to thrive and grow and prosper. And then there's some drift within within that family to go back into a lower SES. So impact comparisons between mental illness and poverty. So so when we think about all of the things that Angelina just said, now, and I'm not real sure exactly how much of it you heard, but the bottom line is when we look at the impact comparisons, we've got, again, mental illness on one side, and we've got generational and situational poverty on the other side. Why do we move into a, a discussion that includes generational versus situational poverty? One of the reasons is some of the things that Angelina just said about the things that are passed on from one generation to the next. First of all, let's look at the mental illness side. We've got the, the fact that our thinking is affected, our emotional state and behavior is affected. There's disruptions of the person's ability to work, carry out daily activities, and engage in satisfying personal relationships. Now, if we look at, for going back to the definition of poverty by Dr. Payne, and then we look at the difference between generational versus situational poverty, it look at the left side on that mental illness list, and now think about generationally, what could be passed on in my family from one generation to the next? How does divorce affect that? Now, one of the things I heard Ruby say when I first started doing this work years and years and years ago, and I think it was Ruby, was that one of the easiest ways out of poverty was to marry up. And then jokingly, somebody said that, and if you marry in poverty to marry up, you have to marry 
two and a half people, I think it was. So how does divorce then affect a person's or how is divorce affected by uh, mental illness or how does divorce affect mental illness? Death, inheritance. We can inherit information. We inherit a mindset. And we'll see that on that list as well. We sometimes inherit a mindset that allows us to focus on surviving or it focuses, helps us to focus on thriving. Now, if all I know is to do what my parents were able to teach me to do, and all they knew to do was what their parents taught them to do from one generation above, then what happens is we stay where we are. Our mindset is such that hmm, our relationships and role models have taught us what it is that we know. We kind of rest in that because most of the folks around us like that as well. So if you look at generational versus situational poverty, and you look at that list, which of those actually appear to you to be an indication of generational poverty versus situational poverty? Situation is about something that happens, something that's going on right now. Lost a job. There was a divorce. There was a death. There was a Hurricane Katrina. There was an injury in Vietnam or in um, uh, post 9-11. So there's a number of things that go on. And so are we looking at generational or are we looking at situational? And if you look at the two sides of that list, how did they merge? Which one came first? So let's move on and information that I had was not aware of at all until I started working with Ruby and um, a framework for understanding poverty. And that is something that we're going to talk about random episodic storage structure for memory patterns. First of all, um, this is coming out of the work of, of, of Dr. Ruben Fierstein. And uh, there's a statement that he uses that said it is possible to have a brain and not a mind because a brain is inherited, but a mind is developed. And if you're not familiar with this work, it might be something that you want to take a closer look at uh, after this after this presentation, because it focuses on patterns of discourse. We can talk about two patterns of discourse, formal register and casual register. Formal is pretty much straight to the point. Casual is going around the issue before the, before getting right back to the point. Informal register story structure, there's a clear beginning, there is a plot, and there is an end. We're talking about patterns now. Mm -hmm. In casual story structure, there is more about characters, uh, more about characters and characters with audience participation. Uh, it's not necessarily told in sequence, but it's more than likely told in vignettes. So now let's talk about episodic memory. Episodic memory, and we're going to put all of this together. Episodic memory is simply a category of long-term memory that involves the, the, the recollection of specific events, situations, and experiences. Examples could be first day of school, uh, a birthday party, a first kiss, etc., etc., etc. In addition to recall of that event, it also involves your memory of the location and the time that the event occurs. 
Now stay with me because you're probably going to need to do some more work on this to get a real clear understanding. And then when we get back to random, we've talked about uh, episodic story structure. We talk about memory patterns. But now random is simply without definite aim, reason, or pattern. So when we put together random episodic story structure from memory pattern, and we look at those individuals that depend upon a random episodic story structure from memory pattern, those individuals that live in an unpredictable environment. Now, just think about it. When you see this person either in poverty or this person with a mental, mental health. health issue lives in an unpredictable environment, does not have the ability to plan, then, of course, that individual cannot plan. If an individual cannot plan, that individual cannot predict. If an individual cannot predict, then he or she cannot identify cause and effect. If an individual cannot identify cause and effect, he or she cannot identify consequences. Now, are you seeing on both sides of that brain, are you seeing poverty and are you seeing mental health? If an individual cannot identify consequences, he or she cannot control impulsivity. And you've probably already read this at the bottom, but if an individual cannot control impulsivity, he or she has an inclination to criminal behavior. Now, you may think, oh my goodness. Mm -hmm. Now, that may not be so bad when you think about it, because if you also think about the fact that throughout our country, if I'm not mistaken, the three largest uh, mental, mental health serving agencies or organizations are within the criminal justice system. Uh, one of them is in Harris County. Harris County being the, the, the largest county of the, the state of Texas is 254 counties, but is the individual that cannot control impulsivity has an inclination to criminal behavior. And in our state, the largest mental health serving organization being the jail or the criminal justice system may be something that could be a real plus because people at least get an opportunity to have their issues addressed, assessed and addressed. But it also paints another picture with a question mark to it. It says that, is this really the way it ought to be? So with that in mind, and probably there'll be more questions about that. Hopefully you do some more study on your own regarding random episodic storage structure for memory patterns. But with that in mind, we'll move on to our next and possibly final slide. Okay, so what, we're, what we are saying is that there's a relationship between poverty, socioeconomic status, and um, mental illness, either the onset of mental illness due to stress or um, the relationship between those who move into a lower income area because they've lost their resources. They've lost housing, um, they've, they've uh, lost relationship, and they're not able to survive in the SES that they originated, and, and now they're, they're in a, um, a lower income uh, community because of the illness, all right? Um, but there's one thing that we want to leave you with, and that is in both cases, whether we're talking about populations with a poverty mindset or populations that are dealing with mental illness, 
there are interventions that can support both sides uh, of, of this conversation. Number one is education. In NAMI, which is where I work, um, we, we have a great deal of educational programs to kind of help people understand what they're dealing with and how to navigate their resources, how to navigate systems, and hopefully build a road to recovery, right? Because mental illness is not static. It's not like, okay, now you have a diagnosis of schizophrenia and there's not one sane day in your life. That's, that's generally not the case. Um, mental illnesses and brain disorders range from ADHD, um, pervasive development disorder, autism, to schizophrenia, to bipolar disorder, borderline, schizoaffective. There's a large range of, of how mental illness can impact a person's brain. So what we prepare families for is it's not about preparing for whether or not or if a crisis is ever going to occur. What we know to be true is that there, it, there will be a crisis. So we try to prepare our families and individuals to prepare for the crisis in advance. And the first uh, weapon uh, that we use, our tool that we put in our tool belt, is education, psychoeducational classes. And then we also have trainings. Um, and in those trainings classes, we, we try to expose um, individuals and families to improve coping skills. Okay. Um, once that class is taken or once a person is exposed to a new uh, strategy for dealing and coping with um, either mental illness, and you might want to think about uh, classes that support those living with poverty mindset. Once they're exposed to a new method, a new way of thinking, then what we want to offer uh, both groups is some support in the new behavior. Gary tells me all the time, it's, it's very easy to make a New Year's resolution, right? I'm sure a lot of us are doing that right now. Um, and to change a behavior. Changing the behavior is not where the challenge is, right? Nope. It is sustaining that new behavior that uh, promotes the challenge. So hopefully this year I'll get rid of that 25, uh, you know, plus or minus pounds that I'm trying to get rid of. But um, I will need support, and most families do, whether there's a mental illness or there's a desire to change poverty mindset, uh, a person will need a mentor, a peer group, a support group. Um, in the case of mental illness and mental health conditions, uh, you may need therapy. Um, I know in Texas, here in the Houston area, we have what's called drop-in centers, which are free, and we also have peer respite centers here. Um, and then the third uh, leg of this table would be uh, the medical model, diagnosis. If you don't have a diagnosis, if you're not uh, aware of your own um, limitations, your own, um, you know, your own diagnosis, then there's no way you're going to accept treatment. And so then we're looking at best practices, a relapse prevention pr uh, plan, and then, of course, again, crisis preparation, which may take a, a network of, of mm -hmm. support, not just one or two people, but a full network. Um, one of, the thing, one of the things that I failed to mention before I started talking about the uh, random episodic storage structure for memory patterns, the, 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 the focus there was on the, again, the poverty work from AHA that indicates uh, how that planning is not one of the things that's usually found in your under-resourced communities and our families. So if we're not taught how to plan, then it be that in poverty or be that within a, uh, a mental health condition. If that planning piece is not taught, then we go down that list of progressions that lead possibly to that uh, criminal behavior. And with all of that, 
in mind, one other thing that I wanted to mention, Angelina mentioned some of the things that's going on in Houston, something that's going on in Texas and throughout many other states is the, um, the uh, production of community health workers. University of Texas uh, Institute, University of Texas School of Community Health Worker Institute um, is really looking at including material that would allow community health workers to be able to more appropriately uh, address needs of those homes that are focusing on and are battling with mental health concerns. And we're really, uh, really excited about our partnership with NAMI Greater Houston and especially uh, with Angelina Hudson as we do that work. One of the things I noticed is um, people are asking about training and information on how to get resources and education into their communities. And, um, I, you know, I, you know, Gary mentioned that I work for NAMI, but in addition to working with the National Alliance on Mental Illness, I actually live with mental illness in my family. And one of the things that I, I tell every um, audience is that it really takes eight different organizations for me to stand here today. <laughs> so I, I want you to recognize that based on where you're located, um, finding um, mental health serving organizations and organizations that don't, they don't say they serve mental health organizations, but they'll definitely serve your situation. Um, you put things together that just works for those uh, subsets and different populations. Um, Ralph asked if the position of the presentation was that all people living in poverty would experience mental illness, and if not, what population is most at risk? Yeah, okay, so that, that was one thing, and especially when we got into the episodic random memory pattern, I was a little concerned about. So please do not take away that we're saying that people who live uh, in poverty are now, you know, absolutely, they're going to, you know, there's going to be a mental uh, illness or mental health condition. That is not what we're saying. But what we are saying is that there is a direct correlation between those who are dealing with um, either financial stressors or family fragmentation that induces stress and trauma. If there's a, pre um, a predisposition towards a brain disorder or mental illness, then those stressors can be seen as environmental triggers. The most widely accepted um, definition of, of where mental illness comes from is that there's Number one, a predisposition for a mental health condition, and then an environmental stressor. And then the second thing we were highlighting was that there are those who come from high SES or middle class. They're, they're, they're not coming from a low-income community, but after the first hospitalization, loss of their marriage, loss of their family, loss of their employment, that, you know, there is a relationship between the illness itself and then moving into uh, and, and poverty. And if you were to think also of how Dr. Payne defines poverty, the extent to which an individual does without these resources. And I think that fits well also when we look at, um, at mental illness and or mental health. What's missing in my life? What do I have access to? What is it that I don't have access to that can help me become more stable in this condition? So at the same time, even though, you know, we look at poverty, we look at mental health, I get back to the extent to which these things are available to me so that I can find a balance and stability in my life. 
And I'll just share this. Um, when, when my children were impacted with brain disorder and, and mental health conditions of their own, and I bumped into Gary, I said, look, I don't have the money for, you know, we're, we're, we're strongly in the middle of middle class. We have insurance that will not pay for the treatment necessary. We don't have money to send our kids off to the East Coast where there's some experimental, you know, high dollar um, sort of recovery uh, plan that might help us. And we don't know. We didn't have the money for that. And so we were quickly draining our accounts, paying for everything we could could find. And um, I had to stop before we ended up living in our car and, and say, okay, what, what do I have? What resource do I have? And the first resource I identified was my brain and mind. So let's educate that. Let me find out what it is I'm dealing with and what are some best practices in turning this train around. Thanks again, Gary and Angelina. I want to thank you folks for joining us again today. I think we're going to end there and have a great one, folks.